0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Hi guys, Zach Twomley here with a somewhat very long plug. I apologise in advance for the length of this plug, especially to those of you that are listening on Patreon and are like but I thought you said there was no plugs when we were on Patreon. Normally that is true, but this plug regarding Patreon is very important for everyone. So I figured rather than taking my chances and announcing it through social media, I'd do it here. We are launching something very special in When Diplomacy Fails for patrons at the $6 level and above, the $6 level which we just created. It's called The Delegation Game. And the way it works is that you essentially participate in a fantasy booking style version of the Paris Peace Conference, which will be beginning in January of 2019, literally the day when the real Paris Peace Conference opens, our fantasy booking style version of the conference will also be launching. I'm really excited about this and if this sounds like something you might be vaguely interested in or if you'd like to hear more details, listen on. If not, if you don't think that you want to participate in any fantasy booking stuff, you don't want to engage in a kind of role-playing Dungeons & Dragons super nerdy history game, obviously, we're massive nerds here in case you didn't know. If this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, if you're only here for the history, fast forward about 15 minutes and we will then be on our way. Everyone else, stay tuned and find out exactly what we're doing here at When Diplomacy Fails and how you can take part. You see, in January 2019, we will of course be analysing the Paris Peace Conference from its opening phases after taking some time in November and December to set the background. When we travel to the Paris Peace Conference and unravel the events that took place a century ago though, I want to take some delegates of my own with me. And that's where you all come in. This is how it works then. If you sign up at the $6 level now, I will add you to a bank of delegates that will feature in our own fantasy booking style version of the Paris Peace Conference. We will place you in the world of 1919 and try to imagine how you would have fared when dealing with the pressing issues of the day, and your fate will depend on several dynamic factors, including how much information you give me about the avatar you send me. What nationality are you? How do you feel about the League of Nations or mandates or Germany in general? I will judge your performance at the Paris Peace Conference based on the information you give me, the information I make up or assume myself if you decide to not give me any information at all and remain mysterious, and of course, I will also take into account the facts we know about the era, This will be an ongoing story, and from the 18th of January 2019, where our coverage of the Paris Peace Conference begins, I will start to set all of this out. The provisional plan at the moment is that if I can get 20 people to agree to be delegates, then we will be able to move on from there, and every week we will have a dedicated episode examining this fantasy-style booking of the Paris Peace Conference, with you guys taking part. I am keeping it flexible, we might change the formula as we go if we get a load of random delegates running around but for now, I'm very excited to see how this plays out. So remember, the more information you give me when you're pledging, the more fleshed out I can make your avatar, and the more complete I can make my judgments of your performance. Your avatars, I keep using that word just because it's a handy way to describe what's going to be happening, they'll be interacting with some of the great figures of the day. Perhaps if you cooperate with your peers and join together in some sneaky diplomatic dealings amongst yourselves, you may even succeed where others have failed. And in this fantasy booking of the Paris Peace Conference, you may even solve the quintessential problem of the Treaty of Versailles. Or maybe you won't, and instead you'll agitate and lobby alongside your peers to continue the war, to march into Berlin, to establish a communist government... The possibilities are endless, but they will be examined in the six-month period which we have to trace the development of the Paris Peace Conference. In other words, provided everything goes according to plan, this fantasy version of the Paris Peace Conference, involving all of your avatars, will end on the 28th of June 2019, that is, the date when the real Treaty of Versailles was signed. As we progress and develop our own story and add in new delegates with their own unique stories and personalities our narrative will broaden to significant proportions. We'll probably have to set certain rules in place regarding how much support for a venture is needed before it passes. I envision that, once this gets big enough, we could organise a weekly chat either on Patreon or the Facebook group, whichever suits, where we will, there, make the decisions on the dispositions of our avatars, and will add it to the machine, the machine being my restless brain, and watch the whole thing develop. Maybe you decide that the virtual delegate that you send to Versailles should try and set Germany to rights, to seize Trieste in Italy's name, or to make Albania great again. If the numbers are there for these dreams, then we could see some pretty brilliant things taking place. There is huge potential here, and as I said, I don't want to limit us or put us in a box, because I can't predict how this will take off, but I do believe that it will, and I also believe there's an opportunity here to promote and to sustain real engagement with this era on a scale which a regular podcast cannot do. Think of it as a kind of Dungeons and Dragons, but for the Paris Peace Conference, or maybe a fantasy football for the Paris Peace Conference, or whatever you want to call it. Either way, after developing this concept, and seeing that no one else has done this before, I'm really excited to get started. What better way to increase engagement with the show than to literally put you guys in it? While we examine the real Paris Peace Conference, of course, in real time, we will also be devoting significant time to our imagined Paris Peace Conference, and it's up to you which one fares better. I should make you aware of some things first, though. The first thing that you should know is that during November and December I'll be promoting the tar out of this concept. First of all because I believe in it, but also because these are the best months to sign up before the Paris Peace Conference opens and we're left to imagine what happens next. However, any patrons who do join at the $6 level after the 18th of January will, of course, be added in, though the order in which you join will affect how you get on in this virtual fantasy Paris Peace Conference world. I cannot guarantee that your peers will be happy to see you sail into the Paris Peace Conference and attempt to take over. The sooner you become a delegate and make your way to Paris, the more influence you're likely to have, and the stronger a position you're likely to be in once the Paris Peace Conference opens. So... What should you do next? Well, the first thing you should do is begin to imagine what kind of character you'd like to place into this fantasy realm of the alternative Paris Peace Conference which we're going to create together. Do you want this avatar of yours to carry your name or do you want to invent some imagined pompous lord or lady and send them there instead? Do they hate Frenchmen? Do they find Australians particularly annoying? Or do they feel very strongly about the Japanese? Maybe you decide you want to role play as a Japanese avatar. As long as you let me know the details, I will work as hard as I can to do your creation justice. The finished result should be akin to something like an audio Dungeons & Dragons, but even then the finished product will be constantly changing right up to the 28th of June 2019. This is, for lack of a better term, the delegation game. It's a game in which you pay to take part, but as far as historical games go, I think there is a precedent for the kind of opportunities for fun and exploration here. As we said, you must be pledging at the $6 level or above to take part in this. Anyone who pledges at the $6 level from now on, I'll assume that you want to be part of this game, and I will take the name you provide me, whether it's your Patreon name or a different name that you supply to pad out your avatar. I'm just really excited about this, guys, and of course those that are already pledging above $6, They only have to let me know if they want to take part and what details you'd like me to know about the character that you want to send as your delegate to this virtual Paris Peace Conference. I will be keeping track of all of your avatars, whatever citizenship you decide to have, your character's dislikes, likes, aims, ambitions, or I'll be making it up according to the information I have at hand if you choose to be mysterious, which is your right. Hopefully I have made the concept clear enough now, but if I haven't, make sure you check out this section of the website which I have recently added that explains all of this. If you're pledging more than $6 a month, and you don't let me know about your desire to take part in this game, then I won't actually know that you want to take part, so please get in touch through the usual channels and just fill me in on the vision you have for your avatar. I should add as well, if you cancel your $6 pledge or otherwise midway through this game, I cannot guarantee that your avatar will not meet some sticky end in the back streets of Paris, because that's just how it goes. Perhaps you'll be murdered by an anarchist or strung up for failing to get Italy what it deserves. Perhaps you are an assassin and you want to try and change the world for yourself. If your avatar dies by some terrible accident, then with some luck and organisation, we can respawn you. Or maybe if your unsuccessful assassination attempt lands you in prison, some other players, kind as they may be, will help bust you out. As you can see, I have thought a lot about this, guys. And while I know full well that a number of you couldn't care less about this whole game concept, because you're there for the history, and you're probably wondering how I could be such a ginormous nerd, but this is just who I am. A Dungeons & Dragons version of the Paris Peace Conference is probably the next level of nerdiness, but I don't care. This is what I love to do. I love inventing things like these and then seeing how you guys react to them. And the beauty of this concept is is that it won't be too invasive for those that don't really care about it. Either we'll be going at the end of an episode with this story that we have, if we don't have that many delegates, or if we reach the required 20 delegates, then we'll be doing a weekly episode called The Delegation Game, where we detail the events that have happened, and we react to news or events or decisions that have been made in the week before. I will also, of course, be judging to see what happens, based on what I know about the circumstances of the Paris Peace Conference, the dispositions of the characters that you describe for me, and any other details that might come up. This thing is supposed to be fluid. It's supposed to be like an ever-changing game that all you guys can participate in. If you have ambitions, if you have things that you want to try and achieve, and you imagine that you could have tried your hand at the Paris Peace Conference, this is, of course, not the same as being there. But it is, somewhat at least, close to being there. And whatever way it ends up being, it does help us get closer to the events of the Paris Peace Conference, and it helps us to engage more with the events of that pivotal conference that existed, of course, a century ago. I'm sure that among my listener base are other proud history nerds, and I look forward to meeting you and bonding with you as we develop this exciting, dynamic, alternative world where the listener becomes the star of the show. So you should know that this application process for you delegates is open now. To make your mark on the Paris Peace Conference, Sign up as always on patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails for $6 a month and contact me thereafter with details of what your avatar wants, believes, hates, loves, and where he or she hails from. A supremely exciting world is just waiting to be shaped and altered history, friends and delegates. All you need is your passport to bring you to Paris, and you can make history thrive while also, perhaps, helping to make diplomacy succeed. Again, a reminder that a new section of the website explaining this concept can be found by clicking the link in the description. And as well, I should add, for a final note, of course, those pledging, those new patrons that come in and pledge at the $6 level, you'll be getting all the stuff that the $5 history friends get too. In other words, the Suez Crisis, the Age of Bismarck, etc., so yes, it's like the best of all worlds. For those of you that want to stay at $5 and don't want to partake in any of this, just stay right where you are. For those of you that are at $5 and or below maybe two or three, et cetera, and you want to partake in this, increase your pledge to $6 and we can be on our way. So yes, I realize I've gone on and on about this and apologies to patrons who were listening to this and didn't really want to hear anything about Patreon, but it's easier to kind of advertise the fact that this thing is being launched here rather than trying to do it over social media because the response is often not all that inspiring. So yes, we are launching the Delegation game. You can sign up now or you can just stand back and see what happens. Either way, I can't wait to see how this goes, guys. I can't wait to let our imaginations run wild and to get even deeper into the weeds of this incredible era than we already have. Alrighty, I've wasted enough time. Enjoy the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. army is fighting for you, to the end that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth.
0: I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary May well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy between them have made way to people achieving their and the whole sea of international relationships in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight all the here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here.
1: This is the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 3. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 3. The house that house built. Of course, despite the fact that this episode is ingeniously named by yours truly... It does have a lot of serious stuff going on, and there is a really good story here too as well. Of course it's good, otherwise I wouldn't be telling it. Last time, we continued with our narrative looking at the final few weeks of war in Germany, and how the American and German diplomatic back channels worked throughout October in particular to effect some kind of armistice negotiations which would be acceptable to everyone. Germany, as we saw, was deep in the red. There was no question of continued resistance so long as starvation pervaded daily life, the army had essentially run out of men, and revolution loomed. To plug the gaps, the Kaiser and his government attempted to meet the Americans halfway by engaging with the President's apparent preconditions for peace. Woodrow Wilson had his own reasons for making democratic constitutional reform in Germany a precondition. Not all of them, as we saw, revolved around his love for Germany. After requesting that Germany be reimagined as a democratic country... Wilson then left the Germans to stew in their own juices while his friend Edward House arrived in France for the preliminary discussions on an armistice. Having worked for several months behind the scenes to arrive at a solution to the war, Wilson was now content to work in the open alongside his allies in the Entente for the settlement he wanted. At the top of his list of aims was to maintain America's position of importance and influence within these negotiations. For this to happen, House would have to instill the importance of the 14 points within the minds of the Europeans and to ensure that America's associates in Europe did not seek to grind Germany into dust. Only by propping up Germany and spreading the good news of his message, Wilson believed, could the United States be assured of the sufficient influence to remake the post-war world. And his voters would also be shown exactly how determined their president was to treat firmly and fairly with the defeated enemy. First, however, House would have to work on his allies, to reach the basis for an agreement which any further discussion of a peace conference required. While on this adventure, House would be forced to confront all manner of personalities and characters, and it is this journey that we are tasked with covering today, in a great example of the kind of personal diplomacy which this era produced. Just before we get into this though, I have to say a huge thanks to those folks over at Yale for digitising the entire back catalogue of Edward House's diaries. Without their work, I never would have been able to make this episode, and you too can access House's diaries absolutely free of charge by just clicking on the link in the description below of this episode. House wrote an awful lot of stuff, trust me, and thanks to the great folks over at Yale, we're able to read it all without leaving the comfort of our homes. So thanks a lot to them. But without any further ado, we will now take you to this scene where Edward House arrives in France on the 26th of October, fully intent on adding the finishing touches to the peace settlement, only to be met with several walls. The weather was so thick before we landed at Brest that it was necessary to run up and down the coast for several hours not daring to attempt the dangerous harbour and such fog. It was a question in my mind whether we did not run more danger from submarines than from the rocks, because we know these pests lurk near this harbour. This was the unassuming first entry of Edward House's diary on the 26th of October 1918. House would remain in France for several months, and would bear witness to Wilson's vision first coming to life, and then withering and dying before his very eyes. On the 26th of October, though, House was a man on a mission. House knew that it would be his mission to take part in drafting the armistice terms and, if necessary, to urge moderation towards Germany. Above all, House was commissioned to urge for Allied acceptance of the 14 points, which the Germans had already accepted as a basis for peace negotiations, as we saw before. While he may have known that the Germans were at least on board, House could not take for granted that the Allies would give way on either moderation or the 14 points. Thanks to several months of negotiations within the Allied camp, Wilson's administration knew that the Allies would want an armistice based on terms akin to those of an unconditional surrender, and that they would also want a free hand at the peace negotiations. This was of course not acceptable to Wilson, or to House, who shared his President's ideals and aims. A striking feature of House's mission hits us almost immediately. Despite all that was at stake, the President had apparently not seen the need to bring his man up to speed with all that he had expected of him. Almost from the first, our association was intimate, House later remembered on his relationship with Wilson. Almost from the first, our minds vibrated in unison. And House wasn't lying in this. You are the only person in the world with whom I can trust everything. Wilson confessed to House in 1915, shortly after the death of his first wife. There are some, continued the President. I can tell one thing and others another, but you are the only one to whom I can make an entire clearance of mind. So intensive was their friendship, so important to each man was the other, that Wilson's new wife purportedly watched House with a nervous kind of jealousy, as a new girlfriend would to a best mate. Understanding the extent of their friendship is critical if we are to understand why Wilson had sent this man to France with no official post in the administration to negotiate in his name, and without even giving him official instructions. I have not given you any instructions, Wilson said, because I feel that you will know what to do. House didn't look like a man in control of his best friend or of the situation. He was unintimidating physically, the result of an accident he had had as a child. He was also delicate in many other respects, frequently covering his legs with a blanket while in Paris due to the cold. Yet he was also incredibly intelligent, if also quite vain. Though he wore the honorary title of colonel, in reality he had never seen combat. Combat, indeed, wasn't his strength, because his strength was with people. I used to like to set boys at each other, he told one biographer, to see what they would do and then try and bring them around again. A manipulator, a schemer, and a negotiator of the highest order was Edward House. He knew how to work people, and he understood how to reach them where they were. He managed this feat by ensuring that he was well appraised of the key goals, the character traits, weaknesses, and more, of his peers in Paris. This was essential if he was to get anywhere. House was tasked with meeting the most important leaders of the world. He could not afford to appear small, so he would use his intellect to make up the difference. Intelligent and perceptive though he was, it might surprise us to learn that House believed sincerely and passionately in Wilson's vision for a new world. Perhaps because of this shared belief, Wilson could assume that House was familiar with the basic ideas of his peace plan both from a military and political point of view, and this forms another part of the reason why Wilson hadn't met with House for a last-minute cramming session before his departure. Evidently, House believed his mission was too important to rely on his own assumptions about what the President wanted, though. He managed to discern the true measure of the President's thinking and on how his peace principles should be realised in the coming negotiations and thereafter by arranging an interview between Wilson and Sir William Wiseman, a representative of the British Secret Service in the United States who was a personal friend of House and who would accompany him to Paris. By setting up Wiseman and Wilson, House could be sure that Wilson would explain his goals and aims to his good friend, whom House could then mine for details. Indeed, Wiseman had been provided with a succinct summary of the President's aims and beliefs, which served effectively as House's Bible for the next few weeks. This exercise might appear unimportant and a bit odd in the grand scheme of things, and indeed it is in many ways, but it does say a great deal about House's character even at this early stage in our narrative, that in order to maintain the illusion of having some telepathic connection between he and the president, that he was willing to work his contacts and friends to his advantage, rather than just going to see the president in person and asking him what the story was. Wiseman would follow House to Paris, and Wiseman's own contacts and knowledge proved invaluable as well. I do not know how I have lived through the day, wrote House on the 26th of October, 1918. I saw newspaper people at 12 midday and distinguished Americans and foreigners from hour to hour. House then recorded important information on a meeting he had had with some very important individuals in the British service. Field Marshal Haig, Lord Milner, Secretary of State for War, Admiral Benson and Robert Bacon, who was liaison officer between the British troops and ours, took lunch with me, It was a delightful and important meeting. I got Haig's mind upon the question of an armistice, and also Milner's. I find Milner moderate, and was surprised to find Haig equally so. He does not consider the German military situation warrants their complete surrender. I wish I could go into the details of our conversation, for in a way it was historic. I did a great deal of the talking. I destined to frame the case as the President and I wished it, and wanted to convince both Milner and Haig that we were right, in order that we might have the benefit of their support on Tuesday. Tuesday was to be the occasion where the Supreme War Council would engage in its first and most significant debate since House had arrived. The British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, would be there on Tuesday, as would George Clemenceau, the French Premier. House recalled his meeting with the Frenchman later that day, and a scene that is also well worth repeating, so we're going to repeat it. House recalled, I saw Clemenceau at six o'clock. He received me with open arms. We passed all kinds of compliments. He seems genuinely fond of me. He spoke in acrimonious terms of Lloyd George and of the English generally. He said that they did not tell the truth and he remarked that Lloyd George sends his orders to me from time to time. And he also said, I wonder how I keep my temper. It was news to me that he did. He gave in the gravest confidence Marshal Foch's terms for an armistice. No one had seen it excepting himself, not even the President of the French Republic. It was perhaps to be expected that Clemenceau had not shared this idea with the President, for one solid reason above all. Georges Clemenceau despised the French President, Raymond Poincaré, largely because the two men's egos and ambitions grated against each other. It was a case of, this town isn't big enough for the two of us. Poincaré's charisma and depth of personality was matched by Clemenceau's tenacity, his passion of speech and his burning love of France. Poincaré had enjoyed dominating René Viviani, the empty vessel of a premier who had helped lead France to war in 1914, and who had accompanied Poincaré to Russia, just as Austria-Hungary was writing its ultimatum to Serbia. The succession of premiers who followed Viviani read like a long list of repeat offenders in the office. Artiste Briand, for instance, was premier 11 times, 11 times, between 1909 and 1929, an ominous reflection of the shaky coalition governments which the French Republic produced and which would eventually help engineer that republic's downfall in 1940. With the arguable exception of the stalwart Briand, then, Poincaré had no real rivals for his power and influence, that is, until Clemenceau succeeded to the Premiership in late 1917. Clemenceau was determined to represent France as head of the government. He would also represent France at the upcoming peace conference. Poincaré had a presence at that seismic gathering, but he was utterly dominated by Clemenceau, a fact which we will be reminded of well into the future of this series. In any case, back to House. House's gatherings with the British and French on the 26th of October demonstrated what Woodrow Wilson was up against in his quest to establish the peace terms he desired, and also what Germany was up against, if its leaders hoped to emerge intact from the peace. Clemenceau expressed his belief, which was also that of Marshal Foch, that Germany was so beaten she would accept any terms which were offered, House wrote. This, of course, we know to be untrue. Germany had shackled its hopes and dreams to the American promises. While it was desperate enough to engineer a democratic reimagining of Germany, its statesmen were still, as we have seen, somewhat living in denial by late October. Largely because no enemy armies had marched through the streets of Berlin, the comprehensive defeat and impossible odds which the leftovers of the German army faced into could be washed over with a veneer of pride and denial. Not until the ultimate collapse at home, as we'll see would the extent of the military defeat be felt, and the unpalatable terms be swallowed. As we continue to mine House's diary, we are left with some incredible nuggets. What stands out even from this early phase, the pre-preliminaries they could be called, is the gulf in opinion between the British, French and Americans. House recorded having certain figures on side with his views, and his estimates of other more hardline individuals, mostly consisting of Frenchmen. In between enduring criticisms of Pershing, the American commander-in-chief, and dealing with the Greek Premier's claims on Syria of all places, House recorded a meeting he had with that British friend of his, William Wiseman, and he made a striking note on Wiseman's reports on the mood in England. If bringing Germany low was a sticking point for the French, Then Woodrow Wilson's point on freedom of the seas, within his 14 points proclamation, proved to be the sticking point in London. House wrote the following on the 28th of October. The British Navy seemed to me to be analogous to the German Navy, except the German army is under the direction of an autocracy, while the German Navy is under the direction of a democracy. I do not believe the United States and other countries would willingly submit to Great Britain's complete domination of the seas any more than to Germany's domination of the land. And the sooner the English recognised this fact, the better it would be for them. I told them furthermore that our people, if challenged, would build a navy and maintain an army greater than theirs. We had more money, we had more men, and our natural resources were greater. I believed such a programme would be popular in America, and should England give the incentive, the American people would demand the rest. As impressive as this blustering and threatening sounds on House's part, and as we may like to imagine that he did confront the British and claim that the Americans would build a bigger navy than them if they didn't behave, it is entirely possible that House did not confront his British ally with such a formidable threat, a threat which the United States would make good a generation later, although in very different circumstances. Either way, House's outburst here shows that he had very little patience for British claims on the status quo, Like his treatment of France, House was disadvantaged by the narrow-mindedness of his vision. While this vision was admirable in many respects, it sometimes left him unable to properly consider where his partners were coming from. Those that did not believe as emphatically as he did in these principles, those that did not have a sprawling ocean to protect them from a vengeful Germany, could come under harsh criticism by House and the President, as we will see later. But this formed merely one ingredient of the struggles which the peacemakers would face at Versailles. All of them came from very different political, geographic and military situations, but for the sake of the peace and the future good of the world, they would have to work together to overcome these differences. House reiterated later that day in his diary, It seems to me of the utmost importance to have the Allies accept the 14 points and the subsequent terms of the President, if this is done the basis for a peace will already have been made. Germany began negotiations on the basis of these terms, and the Allies have already tentatively accepted them. But as Germany shows signs of defeat, it is becoming every day more apparent that they desire to get from under the obligations these terms will impose upon them in the making of peace. If we do not use care, we shall place ourselves in some such dishonorable position, as Germany did when she violated her treaty obligations as to Belgium. House wasn't afraid to speak his mind, though it does seem incredible that he should be so blunt with his British peers. Speaking to them later that evening on the 28th of October, House recorded that he said, I hoped the British Prime Minister would share my views as to Russia. If a great military figure should arise in Russia, she might become a menace to the world. I would like to see this great empire fall into several states. The war, I said, would leave but two great powers in the world, Great Britain and the United States. Great Britain, I thought, was not to be feared for the reason that in time she would be reduced to the British Islands. Her colonies, I thought, would be bound to her by ties so light that they would scarcely be ties at all, just as soon as they found safety in the world's reorganisation. Evidently, House was already planning for the post-war settlement, and he correctly envisioned that Britain and the United States would draw great benefits from their victories. Interestingly, House also talked about the reduction of Britain's empire, an eventuality which absolutely did not occur in the interwar years, and he also claimed that Britain would be reduced merely to its home islands, a note which also indicated that House expected Ireland to remain an integral part of the British Empire, or perhaps it simply demonstrated House's lack of knowledge or attention towards the Irish situation, which was due to boil over in a few months into a full-blown war of independence against the British crown. House, at any rate, had more than enough on his plate. The fourteen points are considered vague and I am constantly asked to interpret them, House complained. Unless we all agree as to what they mean, I'm afraid our wires may become crossed. This was, in House's defence, a fair point. He had his people in Paris work up a summary of the points to be sent to Wilson for approval. Armed with this more succinct, to-the-point version of Wilson's manifesto, House hoped that thereafter he would be better equipped for what was to come. Later, on the 29th of October, House met with Georges Clemenceau and David Lloyd George. The meeting was a stormy one, with House, once again according to his own record, making use of a great deal of bluster and threat to work through Anglo-French opposition to the 14 points plan. Lloyd George's opposition to the freedom of the seas issue had dipped, but Clemenceau found much to disagree on, as had the Italian foreign minister who was reportedly en route. House reports that he said, It would inevitably lead to the President going before Congress to ask whether the United States wished to continue the war in order to accomplish the aims of Great Britain, France, and Italy. This seems to have done the trick. The Entente supported House's initial statement, and they moved on to more pressing matters, namely the question of whether it was just for France to seize German territory in a post war settlement, even temporarily. House described the meeting in his diary, saying, Lloyd George said he did not approve of occupying the left bank of the Rhine. He thought the terms already too severe on Germany. Clemenceau earnestly insisted upon this occupation and promised upon his word of honour that France would withdraw just as soon as Germany complied with peace conditions. He declared it would be impossible for him to go before the Chamber of Deputies or before the army with anything less than some sort of occupation of German soil. David Lloyd George yielded, Thus began the tug of war between the British and French over the German settlement. For the sake of French security, Clemenceau was adamant to the end that the left bank of the Rhine, with its important crossings and industrial weight, be occupied. The length of this occupation changed constantly, and at one point the idea of an independent Rhineland state was proposed later on in Versailles, as a nod to the varied nature of German history and culture, which had always, before 1871 at least, seen the Rhineland associate itself more with the French culture and outlook rather than the Prussian culture and outlook. The Rhine issue set aside, for the moment, the leaders turned next to another sticky situation, that of the Ottoman Empire, which would surrender the next day on the 30th of October. House wrote, We decided at this afternoon's conference we would take up the question of the armistice with Austria and afterward the question of the armistice with Turkey. With Turkey, however, I have nothing to do, since we never declared war on her. Lloyd George explained to Clemenceau that the Turks were willing for the English and French to occupy their territory, but they were not willing for the Italians or Greeks to do so. This will be a troublesome problem this afternoon, but they thought it might be gotten over by allowing the Italian fleet to enter the Bosphorus, along with the French and British fleets. It was decided to take up the German armistice after we reached an agreement as to the other two. Germany's can was kicked down the road to later on in the day, while the question of the Turkish peace and the issue of Bolshevism, which came up next, was dealt with. Speaking on Bolshevism, House said, I spoke of the danger of Bolshevism entering Germany and Austria and spreading into Italy, France and England. Clemenceau repudiated the thought that it might come to France. Lloyd George admitted that it was possible in England. They both thought anything might happen in Italy. Anything indeed did happen in Italy, as the Big Four became the Big Three in April 1919, and Vittorio Orlando was usurped as Italian Premier halfway through the Versailles negotiations by an angry Italian public discontented with what it had received in the spoils. Rather than Bolshevism, though, it was a new creed and a new political direction, that of Fascism, which consumed Italy in the years to come. Next, the apparently last-minute decision to settle on Versailles as the location for the peace conference revealed itself. I asked Clemenceau what place he had in mind for the peace conference. He said, Versailles. Lloyd George replied that he and I had agreed upon Geneva. Clemenceau did not argue the matter, and I suggested that it might be postponed for further discussion. Indeed, Clemenceau would drop it for now, but in spite of Lloyd George and House's favour towards Geneva and Woodrow Wilson's favour towards Lausanne, the French Premier would have his way in the end. There was a childish wasted time yesterday at the Quai d'Orsay, the French Foreign Office, when Lloyd George and Clemenceau wrangled for the entire afternoon as to whether the British Admiral or the French Admiral should receive the Turks' surrender. This was how House opened the diary entry on the 30th of October, the day when the surrender of the Ottoman Empire was finalised. The rivalry between the British and French had evidently not subsided after so many years fighting side by side. Both parties were thinking of the future and their claims to the territories that the House of Osman would leave behind. Whomever received the surrender from the Turks would surely be legitimised in their quest to take up where the Turks had left off. This, at least seemed to be the logic behind the squabble. In House's estimation, though, Clemenceau was the better equipped of the two premiers. He wrote on the two men, Clemenceau appears to better advantage than Lloyd George. The trouble with Clemenceau is that he thinks in terms of the Second Empire. He does not know what all this new thought is about, and frankly says that his task is done with the winning of the war. I take it he will occupy a secure place in French history, for he deserves it. There is but one master in France today, and that is Georges Clemenceau. His rule is almost absolute, temporary though it may be. In the event, Clemenceau's tenure as Premier lasted until 1920, but by then, the mustachioed Frenchman would be not quite done with French politics. He would try and run for president unsuccessfully in the years that followed, before dying in 1929. He did not live to see his proud work go up in flames, but he certainly knew that dangers were afoot and that challenges were going to face France in the future. Anyway, back to House, and we are given another indication of House's negotiating strategy in this same diary entry, when House said, "'I fell to thinking about the dilemma I was in with the three Prime Ministers. It then occurred to me that there was a way out of this difficulty. I would tell them that if they did not accept the President's 14 points,' and other terms enunciated since January 8th, 1918, I would advise the President to go before Congress and lay the facts before it, giving the terms which England, France and Italy insisted upon, and ask the advice of Congress whether the United States should make peace with Germany, now that she has accepted the American terms, or whether we should go on fighting until Germany had accepted the terms of France, England and Italy, whatever they may be. I had a feeling of great satisfaction when I thought of this, and I turned over and went to sleep, knowing that I had found a solution to a very troublesome problem. It worked just as I thought it would. The last thing any of them want is publicity of the kind which the programme I have outlined would give. And above all, they do not dare take the responsibility of continuing the war without us. There were surely only so many occasions where House could use this threat to his advantage, Eventually, the Allies would call his bluff, certain that the American President would cave on certain issues to save the core premise of his mission. The performances by House, indeed, painted American diplomacy in a confident and solid light. Until mid-December, really, House would rule the roost in the President's name, and we should not be surprised to learn that House was dead set against Wilson's coming to Paris. House predicted, accurately as it turned out, that once the initial optimism wore off, the President would find that his task was a great deal more difficult than he had expected. In addition, while House dealt at this early stage with preliminaries, the minimum agreements necessary to establish the foundations for a peace conference, the President would be tasked with actually working with this peace conference, complete with all the different layers of interest, backbiting, scheming and cynicism that this entailed. Back to the issue of House's vanity, though, and the man always managed to make even the most trivial of developments cast him in a favourable light. The 31st of October was the date set for crafting the terms of Austria-Hungary's surrender with respect to its naval and armed forces. House made a point of noting that "...both of these historic documents have been formulated at my official residence, instead of at either the war or foreign office." Later that day, House received word from the President, and Wilson informed him that it was imperative that the League of Nations and 14 points form the basis for whatever peace settlement would follow. House did not need to be told twice. Indeed, he remarked that the tone of Wilson's communique was such that, "'Had I shown it to any of my colleagues, it would have led to serious trouble.' Perhaps Wilson was growing restless, owing to the German efforts to prize some answer or more detail out of him. Perhaps he was also anxious to involve himself in the negotiations, and did not wish to miss anything. Wilson would get his chance, but in the meantime, House was more than happy to work on without him. Interestingly, House forged a great rapport with Clemenceau, and began to identify more closely with the French, while he kept Lloyd George mostly at a distance, and declared his frustration with the British more often. Unsurprisingly, this favour was returned by the two premiers, who each formed their own opinions of Wilson's right-hand man. "'I can get on with you,' Clemenceau had said to House. "'You are practical. I understand you. But talking with Wilson is sometimes like talking to Jesus Christ.'" Clemenceau was not comfortable with all of what Wilson's vision entailed, and he did not like this spectacle of the American president sailing into Europe, the messianic figure here to save Europeans from themselves. All that they needed saving from, in Clemenceau's mind, was Germany, and also the Bolsheviks as a secondary matter. Lloyd George was much less kind to House in private, though in public the wily Welshman was of course all smiles. On the one hand, Lloyd George declared that House saw more clearly than most men, or even women, to the bottom of the shallow waters which are to be found here and there in the greatest oceans of men. Yet, on the other hand, House was, to Lloyd George, essentially a salesman and not a producer, adding, it is perhaps to his credit that he was not nearly as cunning as he thought he was. To House, Lloyd George was a Mischief maker who changes his mind like a weathercock. He has no profound knowledge of any of the questions with which he is dealing. This acidic assessment on House's part, as we'll see, was not entirely unfounded when it came to Lloyd George's knowledge base. It also didn't help that Lloyd George was a pain in House's backside at this early stage of the negotiations, beating that dead horse of the freedom of the seas and insisting that Britain must be allowed to retain its naval supremacy. As House confided to his diary, William Wiseman, that friend in British intelligence who had clued him in in the past, was the one to get it in the neck for his prime minister's stubbornness. House recalled, I sent for Sir William Wiseman immediately upon my return from Versailles and told him that unless Lloyd George would make some reasonable concessions in his attitude upon freedom of the seas, that all hope of Anglo-Saxon unity would be at an end that the United States went to war with England in 1812 on the question of her rights at sea, and that she had gone to war with Germany in 1917 upon the same question. I did not believe that even if the President wished to do so, he could avoid this issue. And if Lloyd George expressed the British viewpoint as he indicates, there would be greater feeling against Great Britain at the end of the war than there had been since our Civil War. I again repeated, with as much emphasis as I could, that our people would not consent to allow the British government or any other government to determine upon what terms our ships should sail the seas, either in times of peace or in times of war. It is indeed a difficult to fault house in this regard. There would have been uproar had the British begun searching American vessels, as they had done in the past. Yet those days were clearly long gone, and Lloyd George did not dream it was possible to return to them. Instead, what the British Prime Minister wished to see was Britain's supremacy on the seas respected, which in effect meant her freedom of action to use her navy as an instrument of war where necessary and to maintain her dominance over key waterways which also belonged to her empire. Lloyd George was also anxious to impress upon House the importance of the empire to British security and Clemenceau in time would do the same regarding the French Empire. How else were these comparatively small European nations meant to stand up to manpower powerhouses like Russia or Germany if they could not call upon their colonies and dominions to help them. Whether House was morally right or wrong to argue for dismantling of the colonies and an end to British naval domination isn't the issue. He should have been more understanding and sympathetic towards genuine British security concerns. It was all right for the Americans, Lloyd George would say, if Germany or Russian Bolshevism struck... House could scurry across the Atlantic and leave Europeans to their own devices. Lloyd George now appreciated a key fact which was hammered home even more painfully in the aftermath of the Second World War. That being that it was no longer possible for Britain to cut herself off from Europe as she once had. Europe, for better or worse, was dragging Britain along with her. On the 2nd of November, House was back in action, complaining about Lloyd George's stonewalling on the question of freedom of the seas. This time House was joined by Lord Northcliffe, the British media baron and owner of such publications as The Times, The Daily Mail and The Daily Mirror. Northcliffe will return to our narrative later, featuring as the disgruntled Brit who wasn't invited to join the other British plenipotentiaries at Versailles. Owing to his work during the war in directing both anti-German propaganda and criticism of the government when it suited him, Northcliffe assumed that he would be selected to join with the panel of Brits during the Paris Peace Conference. His disappointment in Lloyd George for failing to invite him was felt especially deeply since Northcliffe's papers had campaigned first for the creation of a Minister of Munitions which Lloyd George had filled, and then for Lloyd George's appointment as Prime Minister... In late 1916. Lloyd George, in other words, owed a debt to Lord Northcliffe, at least according to Lord Northcliffe. The Prime Minister evidently did not agree. Notwithstanding the snub, though, Northcliffe was happy to help House with whatever he needed, as House recorded. Northcliffe offered the use of his publications in any way desired. At this interview, I merely gave him a glimpse of my difficulties with the Prime Minister. He assured me that Great Britain desired nothing out of the war and he wished to know if British officials had made this clear. I evaded the question for the moment. I do not wish to get him into a violent controversy with Lloyd George just now, because it will be apparent to Lloyd George how it has come about. House's entry raises another theme which will be touched on in the future, the notion that all individuals are being watched by one another at all times. Security and secrecy would be taken to a new level once the Paris Peace Conference really kicked off in January 1919. But at this early stage, House was wise not to involve Lord Northcliffe too extensively in his problems, since it would inevitably get back to the British Prime Minister, and Lloyd George was already, in House's mind at least, difficult enough to deal with. Throughout the 2nd of November, though, House struggled with the British opposition to the Freedom of the Seas idea because, in House's mind... The Prime Minister assumes that all seas belong to Great Britain. The reality was more complex than that, but the two finally sat down and hammered out their differences in the early afternoon of the 3rd of November. Lloyd George, according to House, showed visible signs of excitement and nervousness. I've never seen him exhibit quite as much agitation as before. And House continued, Our debate was not heated and not unpleasant, but both he and I have both been keyed up to a high pitch ever since this subject has been under discussion. We were at it all day in one way or another, and when we sat at the table, I think we both felt that a crisis had come in the end, for a variety of reasons. Lloyd George would give way, but with some caveats, as the behavior of so many other statesmen over the course of the Paris Peace Conference demonstrated winning something to bring home and display to the electorate was critically important. Lloyd George, facing into an election which would certainly be called at the end of the war, knew that it was vital that the British Prime Minister was seen to wrest concessions and recognition from his opposites regarding Britain's rights. House claimed victory at Lloyd George's backing down, having repeatedly expressed his disdain and indignation throughout his diary at Britain's insistence on possessing the seas. Lloyd George, for his part, had not given up, and he would in fact win the war in the end. He would be back at a more opportune time to reiterate British rights, and then House's power of persuasion would not be sufficient to win the day. Knowing when to hold him and when to fold him, Lloyd George seems to have wanted to get on with things, and he relinquished the British objections to the freedom of the sea's point, in the process removing the final stumbling block towards the acceptance of the Supreme War Council of the Fourteen Points as the basis for negotiations. House, typically enough, did not simply boast for a few sentences and leave it at that. He instead sprinkled his prose with surprise at how well he had done, while, of course, taking good care to record absolutely every single compliment which was given to him for making Lloyd George see the light. Yesterday, noted House, the President in one of his telegrams said, I am proud of the way you are handling the situation. I appreciate this, for he is not given too much praise. To this was added... William Wiseman and many other friends have been trying to make me believe that I have won one of the greatest diplomatic triumphs in history. Mercifully, though, House's diary did not exist solely to stroke his own ego. He noted a significant development which was learned of late in the day of the 3rd of November. He said, As the sitting was breaking up, word came that Austria had accepted the terms of the armistice laid down for her. There was great excitement and clasping of hands and embraces, I said to Premier Orlando, brave Italy, which brought him near tears. This adds to the historic interest of the room in which so many of these important sittings have been held. As if sensing that the end of this particular phase of the negotiations was near, on the 4th of November, House summarised all that had been done so far and how he had got there. He said, The facts are, I came to Europe for the purpose of getting the Entente to subscribe to the President's peace terms. I left a hostile and influential group in the United States, frankly saying that they did not approve the President's terms and that they were trying to incite not only the people of America, but the Allies to repudiate them. On this side, I find the Entente governments as distinctly hostile to the 14 points as our opponents at home. The plain people generally, both in America and Europe, are, I think, with the President. Surely they would be if they understood the vital issues involved. Unfortunately, it is not with the people we have to deal The diplomatic battle of the last few days has resulted in complete victory, though. Our armistice to Germany carries with it the approval of the President's January 8th address, and his subsequent addresses with slight modifications, which were transmitted along with the terms of the armistice. I have had to persuade, I have had to threaten, but the result is worth all my endeavours. I am glad the exceptions were made, for it emphasises the acceptances of the 14 points. If they had not dissented in any way, but had let the armistice be made without protest, they would have been in a better position at the peace conference to object to them. Indeed, the 4th of November was the date that the Supreme War Council finalised the preliminary terms for a peace with Germany which all found acceptable. After detailing once again how he overcame the resistance of Lloyd George, House wrote on that, The meeting of the Supreme War Council at my headquarters this morning was pregnant with results. We finally determined upon our terms to Germany, both naval and military. We also determined upon our military procedure in Austria, when attacking Germany on her southern flank, in the event that she does not accept our terms. This statement was innocuous enough considering House's usual style and flair, but it told an important story about the 4th of November. This was the day when the basis for the Paris Peace Conference was hammered out. This was the day when the 14 points was effectively baked into whatever negotiations would follow to discuss Germany's future. Now that all present at the Supreme War Council had agreed to this in principle and signed on the dotted line, it would be impossible to toss aside the contents of the 14 points or to ignore the potential of the League of Nations. House was confident, almost naively so, that this was the final word on the peace treaty and that the armistice could now be offered to Germany on these terms, thus bringing an end to the war. In House's defence, it was above his imagination and the imagination of those that had joined him at Paris to suppose that it would not be until midsummer of the following year that all the related details would be fully developed. In addition, it would have been the bitterest of blows to have revealed to House that, after all his hard work here and for and in the months to come, those hostile and influential groups back home in the United States would so undercut his and Woodrow Wilson's position as to leave it untenable and nakedly vulnerable in the eyes of all. Once this occurred, Wilson's vision would be subject to the whims, ideals and concerns of the Europeans, and these Europeans, as House had certainly learned, were by no means prepared to pull their punches when it came time to create a new world order and tally up the spoils. Notwithstanding his flaws and the peculiarities of his character, House had done good work in the week since he landed in France, at least according to Edward House himself. We will see in the next episode exactly how well or not so well he did, and whether or not it makes sense sometimes to follow exactly to the letter what one man says in his diary about his own exploits. You may or may not be surprised to learn House had a tendency to make himself sound very good and to effectively ignore the parts or not write down the parts that made him sound bad. In the next episode, we'll see how House actually got on and how his peers, including George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George, actually responded, reacted and cooperated or not with his proposals. Typically, as was the case with so many stories to do with the Paris Peace Conference at any stage of its development, what you saw on the surface was not always what you got when you looked a little deeper.